Bonjour, ni hao. Como estas? This is John James and welcome to Champagne Strategy. This is a red pill business podcast which deconstructs world-class strategy focusing on growth, marketing and sales with just a sprinkling of tech and champagne. Listen to this episode if you dare, but you've been warned, there's no going back. So just before we get into today's episode, I just want to give a shout out to some of my friends, Yaniv and Chris, who also have another podcast called The Startup Podcast. What I really enjoyed about it is they've been there, done that, and they've both been working in multiple countries around the world. They've worked for Google, small startups, billion dollar unicorns. So if you're in the startup game, scale up game, or the tech industry, and you want to cut through all the folly that everyone talks about, I highly recommend you give a listen to one of the episodes. Without experience in those areas, you can be told lots of different things, lots of different people. So if you have a chance just google and search for chris and yaniv y-a-n-i-v and their podcast the startup podcast okay there's going to be one of the shortest intros i've ever done just listen to this episode it's deep old uh, valois oh, valois have never had it okay well, you're a champagne aficionado we're, we're pretty simple when it comes to french it's usually moe or um or verve or bollinger that they're good good would want to try it. It's a Blanc de Blanc, which is a straight Chardonnay from Cremont. So I'll put it up there again. And Cremont mm-hmm. is one of the nice. Grand Cru or expensive areas. Um, and underneath, it's in the Cote de Blanc, which is this strip of land within Champagne that geologically is just this block chalk underneath like mm. 30 to half a meter of, of soil the the grapes grow and they tend to be very expensive very concentrated very refined and and flavorsome that really gives champagne that characteristic mineral chalky acidic kind of punch that you don't mm. get pretty much anywhere else there are a couple of exceptions that come close but hey, you there. might get a little bit of limestone in adelaide hills but that'd be yeah and sometimes the cliffs of dover so in england they're growing some french sort of style champagne around there okay i'm going to open this and get a bit of a pop and no, i made i made half a dozen vintages in the uh hunter valley oh really so you're a winemaker yeah, i have yes wow okay <laughs> just as a hobby a long time ago oh great okay so i, I can assume that you kind of know what i'm talking about okay you ready Cheers. Uh, thanks for coming on the show, Malcolm. Cheers. Well, look, let's get into it. Today, we're talking about direct marketing. Now, just some context to this. There's been a lot of chatter in the tech world, especially in direct-to-commerce or DTC retail, about using direct mail and the crazy yields that you can get from sending out pieces of mail to physical letterboxes. And why they haven't tried this before is beyond me, but a lot of these firms are sort of reliant on digital media like Facebook and search and using that in a direct response mechanism to acquire new customers and to re-engage with them. And the cost of that has been going up so much that some of these older school mediums are actually more cost effective, but a lot of people are just finding this out for the first time. So and I want to dive into the subject with you because I think it's something that a lot of the digital native marketers are just not exposed to, not aware of, and never done before. And when you're not familiar with a medium, you tend not to use it. It's like an inherent bias that I see happening. So over to you, maybe just a, a quick overview of your, your career so far and sort of and the recent book you've released, which is kind of what I saw the other day and, and why we're talking. Okay, quick overview of career. Well, I've, I'm now, I'm coming in, I worked out because I started late 70s, so I'm coming into my fifth decade. I've been working in direct marketing my whole career and brand advertising, retail. I've run marketing departments. I've run three multinational ad agencies. I've worked in America Asia and Australia. I've run my own agencies. I opened Australia's first email marketing agency, wrote the world's first non-American book on email marketing, which I think was the third book in the world 24 years ago. I've built an online cruise business. I've had, an on- I've had a retail travel agency. I've had a supermarket. I've worked in B2B, B2C, government fundraising. So been there, done that, if you like, and watched generational change in terms of technology. Was there for the first dot-com uh, we're now here for the second. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's a very simple reason that most of these, depending on who you talk to, they're called incomplete or 20% marketers, digital marketers. You know, I never call myself a digital marketer because it limits you to a very narrow, it's like saying you're a male urinal marketer because you know how to do advertising in male urinals. It's a channel definition. As George Santayana said, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. If they'd actually studied the basic direct marketing books, they would be using all the media channels like the good direct marketers have. And 
you know, this hilarious new term, D2C. I mean, the original D2C was prostitution, but direct marketing exists. You may have heard of a, a, an agency called Wonderman Thompson. Yes. Do you know why it's called Wonderman Thompson? Well, now it's JWT, wasn't it? Last time okay. I heard or something, it merged or... But no, it I don't was, know. Well, it was J. Walter Thompson, one of the most famous ad men, J. Walter Thompson, and Wonderman was Lester Wonderman, right? Lester Wonderman invented the term direct marketing, and it was one of the biggest direct marketing agencies in the world. So Wonderman Thompson is led by the direct marketing name as against one of the most famous advertising names. None of what we're doing online is new. And that's the thing. Everyone thought it was new because it was new to them. But people have been buying remotely for close on 150 years. Sears started as a dropshipper, right? Sears mailed a catalogue to people out in the far west of the country. Those people then ordered remotely. Sears obtained the product and delivered it to them, nothing new. Off the back of that, they built bricks and mortar. Then off the back of bricks and mortar, they built online. And people are still buying remotely using mail order catalogs and using online catalogs from Sears. And they're buying through the store. So the practice of buying remotely has not is not new. Right? The practice is one of the oldest things in history in terms of marketing. And if the young digital marketers had looked at direct marketing, they wouldn't be making all the mistakes they're making now or suddenly discovering that mail works because mail has always worked. It's only just been ignored this century because old-fashioned was deemed negative for some reason. It's like the zigzagging effect as well. Like uh, there's this preponderance for marketers to kind of get in a bandwagon. And I I see these posts on social media all the time. This is where all advertisers and marketers are spending their money. And I'm like, that's the exact places that I wouldn't be spending money. (laughs) I'd be using the ones that are forgotten where the yield is better. (laughs) The mistake you're making is you're saying marketers are saying that. The majority of these digital marketers aren't marketers and they've gone about bragging that you don't need marketing skills to be a marketer. And there's the evidence by what you just said. And the fact that They've gone, wow, direct mail is new, is the dead giveaway. These are simply cyber hustlers who some have made some fortunes doing it, but most of them don't understand marketing. And if they'd understood the way of direct marketing, they wouldn't have made the most cardinal sin that these digital marketers make, which is giving away free delivery. You know, people have paid for delivery for decades. They're happy to pay delivery when they buy remotely because that's part of buying remotely. And these these immature, naive people went, let's give away the delivery and really screw our margins and make it even harder to make a profit out of the business. Pro- delivery in direct the direct world, the direct-to-consumer world, has always been a profit centre because what you do is you get the delivery at a bulk rate and you charge the consumer at the one-off rate. So pick and pack and postage and handling, as it's called, pick and pack on the on the um, P&L, right? Postage and handling is uh, the revenue, right? Pick and pack is the cost, postage and handling the revenue, and it was always more than the cost to pick and pack because you bought deals on your delivery. Now what they've done is, oh, because we don't know anything about marketing, we're going to give away delivery and put even more pressure on our margins. Smart marketers would never give away delivery because it just bites into the bottom line too much. You know, and unfortunately, you've got people like Amazon who've got such sheer volumes have driven a lot of that. Yeah, I think this uh, this Amazon, they've got so much VC, like debt was so cheap. That was their penetration strategy, giving away, you know, free Amazon Prime membership, basically, which is great for cash yeah. flow, by the way. But they bundle in, you know, a bit of video, free delivery, uh, same day delivery. But yeah, they are taking a hit on their balance sheet and have done for ages. And they're doing that to get to penetration to then, you know, monetize later. Yeah, but not everyone has 20 years time to make to make a profit. You know, they went nearly 20 years before they made a profit. Direct mail or direct marketing, what is it really simply if you have to explain it to someone? Okay, there's only two ways of marketing. There's mass marketing where you do a single message to as many people as possible and it can involve a call to action or not or simply for brand building. And then there's direct marketing where you deal direct to where your marketing message goes direct to individuals or the the individuals respond directly to you. And there is always an exchange of data or money in other words, subscribe to our newsletter, give us your email address, we'll send you a newsletter. Give us your credit card, we'll send you a box of wine. That's the way of marketing. Digital just happens to be one of the channels used in direct marketing. The problem is a generation didn't actually understand that and they called it digital marketing, which is ridiculous. It, you don't call it by the channel, you call it by the way of marketing. So direct is any form of marketing where you go directly to an individual and they respond to you or you go out to the masses and they respond individually and you capture data or you capture finance uh, as, a, as a process. So it's where you set up an individual relationship through any media. So direct mail is only one media of direct marketing. You've got television, you've got radio, you've got 
email, you've got social, you've got online, you've got unaddressed mail, you've got inserts in fulfilment packs. It, the insert business was massive when we used to mail financial statements to people because there was a whole, American Express had a whole uh, merchandise catalogue that they ran purely out of inserting it into the statements of their customers. And they were able to sell, sell because people were more interested in what they could buy than how much they owed to Amex. But because they went to email to send their catalogue, to send their invoices, they've lost that whole industry. So it's a way of marketing. That's what direct is. And mail is, mail is just one of the channels. Yeah, so it's like a one-to-one sort of personal communication. And the channel that you use to do that really doesn't matter, whether it's physical mail, whether it's Facebook chat, yep. for example, like one-on-one, that's a direct. Exactly, yep. So what, what isn't direct mail then? Okay, well, direct by its definition is personalized in most cases. That's what defines it from, say, unaddressed mail or simply inserts, for example. Generally, direct has a, a, a data component that allows for personalization. Now, the personalization could be John, you know, dear John, or it could be, for example, your policy number, an image of the model phone you've got now, and here's the image of the one we want to sell you. So it's any data that's relevant to you. It can be built into the communication and being mail, it's printed. If it's not, if it's not personalized, then usually it's either unaddressed mail or it's an insert or a catalog. You could have a catalog that's not personalized, that's delivered into your letterbox, or you could have a catalog that is personalized either it's variable data printed, so it's personalized, or there's an accompanying letter with it that's personalized. Most of what, everything you do online is direct mail. And if we had to categorize this this medium or this thing, this concept we're talking about into different categories, for example, I've done envelope letters, so like very thin piece of mail to a letterbox. I've done uh, email newsletters where, you know, you personalize the email newsletter. And I've done chunky mail as well, like where you send something quite physical, like a product or promotional product or something that has maybe a personalized insert or maybe the product itself is personalized and you send that to a mailbox and they open it. Is there different categories that you would define in this this construct we're talking about? In terms of types of mail, I think you're asking, you call it chunky mail, but we call it 3D mail. You've got a standard mail, which is what you would call a DL size envelope and whatever can go into that. You've got you've got plastic wrap, so you've got anything that can be wrapped in plastic apart from Laura Palmer, you know, which is catalogues usually or magazines, and they'll have a fly sheet. You've got padded bags, you know, for, for to protect things. So if you're sending things out, you can have them, or you can have, as you call chunky mail or 3D mail. Now, you know, I've sent and examples in my book. I've sent uh, coffee pots with Italian coffee and gold leaf bone china cups to do the world's first virtual tour of a hotel. And they just plugged in the floppy disk while they made themselves a coffee and took a tour of the hotel. Now, the pack costs 50 bucks a pack. It paid for itself inside four hours of delivery, right, in terms of the responses. It got an 85% response and 15 letters of congratulations from the people who got it. So people were writing to say thank you for your advertising because it was extremely relevant. And it was innovative. You know, these days you just put up, you do a personalized URL or a QR code and take them straight to the landing page. Back then you gave them the floppy disk to load. <laughs> so, so that's a 3D piece. I, I remember we pitched a piece of business for a scientific gas company that was merging. So we built up a molecular structure. And just before we walked in, poured water onto the dry ice that was sitting in the pack. So as you walked in, it was all smoking as you hand delivered the thing. You, you couldn't do that now because of security. I've actually had buildings evacuated because of 3D mail packs um, because they had a laser gun in them because we were selling laser printers for a print company and it went through the x-ray machine. So they thought it was a gun or something or a bomb. And so they uh, Aussie Post in Perth, um, or it was a mining town outside of Perth, they took the mail pack, put it in the middle of the street. Uh, the bomb squad flew in by helicopter followed by the news crew who watched our mail cap pack get blown up in the middle of the street on primetime news that night. So, you know, it comes <laughs> in all formats. <laughs> That's a great story. Yeah, I, I have a few. Um, <laughs> but so mail can come in all forms. Uh, and there's called self-mails that just peel apart and open up using technology, using print technology. And there's a lot of really interesting stuff with variable data print now and what you can do in terms of customising the imagery, customising the, the data. So it's not just a person's name that's, that's on there. There's all sorts of data that makes every piece unique. I was talking to Adam Ferrier from Thinkabell, and he said uh, they brand their invoices even in a B2B context. Mm. So it's like another way to yep. reinforce the brand message. So instead of just going, here's the invoice, you know, blah, blah, oh, blah, yeah. they mm. uh, make it personalized, tailor it. And I'm like, yeah, a lot, a lot of utilities. Why don't they use that as an advantage instead of this boring thing? Why don't you just make it interesting? And- the week, you just have to look. If you believe a LinkedIn profile, you don't have to look at a LinkedIn profile of some of these alleged CMOs. 
um, and you can tell if they haven't had a direct background when they make decisions. So all the research shows that by going from mailing your invoices to emailing your invoices actually costs more because less people pay on time. Now, the utilities companies don't mind because they charge these massive late fees. That's the only reason to hold them back. But what happens is it gets lost in the email because they don't have a physical copy. So the follow-up cost to get people to pay their bills escalates once you move from mail to email. So it actually costs you more to get the money by using it digitally than it did by sending it out by mail. But someone's convinced these people that, oh, it's, we've got to be mo modern. Let's, let, let's cut out mailing and uh, email. I have a, a car very, cousin who's very successful, sold his business, and what he does, or what he did, and he got a premium for it because his cash flow was positive. He found out the accounts clerk who processed the invoices from their creditors. And he would personally mail his invoices each month on a branded letterhead with a $2 scratchy attached to it. He was always paid in under seven days. When he came to sell his business, the cash flow was so positive, he got a, he got a premium <laughs> for it. It's not hard. This is basic common sense. But, oh, let's go digital. You know, that'll solve the world. Let's not, let's not use common sense. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, Ferrier's right. You, you brand everything. Ferrier, in his book, because I read that one, like, don't listen to the customer, hear them instead. And he said, there's this kind of fallacy about like reducing friction, making everything more, more efficient. But what's lost in there is like that customer interaction mm. and like sometimes putting friction back in mm. the scratch. You like opening an envelope. Yeah. That is like a stronger experience that makes them more sticky. It's, it's also a stronger neural experience. John, if you look at all, this, all the research, right? What happens when you put a piece of print in someone's hand? It, it stimulates all five senses, right? T sight, sound, taste, touch, smell. Digital only does three, sight, sound, touch, and where they stimulate are in entirely different parts of the brain. So the brain that's more receptive to positive messaging around branding is what print stimulates. And it can smell. I mean, you, if you go and smell new colored pencils, straight away, you're back to four years old, first day at school. Right? or open up a new textbook. If you did it now, it would take you way back to your childhood. You know, there's, there's sensual emotions attached with, with, uh, with print. And all the neuro research shows this. That, and that's not to say you don't... One's not better than the other. They're just different. And the fact it's being ignored is the sad part because it is so powerful. So, so why is it being ignored? Even if you go to an agency, there is this proponents for them not to use direct mail. It's kind of like the dirty, grubby kind of direct response marketing. Oh, no, no. We're, we're brand marketers, you know, let's okay. do a brand campaign. Let's use mass media. It's kind of like there's this, this bias. I mean, why does that exist okay. in the industry if some of these things are so more effective? It's, I'll tell you why. And it goes back to, you know, prehistory. In the 80s, when direct marketing agencies emerged, right? And David Ogilvy, if you work in advertising, you know who, who D.O. is. He said it was his secret weapon. He grew one of the world's biggest agencies using direct mail to acquire customers, new clients. Right? And what happened was the direct agencies, and Ogilvy was one of the first to grow a global network, I ran Australia. The direct agencies were growing at a time when the brand agencies were struggling. And the other thing was there is this, you know, I'm doing a brand on a big global, you know, I'm working on Coke or Amex or I'm making a television. So there is social cachet to do with, TV, and you've got to understand back in the 70s and 80s, the way to get into movie production was to start in advertising and create ads. And a lot of young producers came from the advertising industry because that's where they got their start. So it had a bit of, you know, this sophistication around it. And then along came the direct marketers who were all about selling things immediately and getting a measurable response because everything you do in direct marketing is a measured response. As I said, either data or dollars. So it goes way back to there where you had two different agencies. And one of the big problems was the clients were starting to see really strong brand effects from the direct response advertising, but at the same time, great sales. So they started to migrate their budgets into the direct agency. So my enemy was not Clemenger Direct, it was Ogilvy and Mather, <laughs> because they were trying to not, not let me get to see clients of theirs, as they called it. So rather than do the right thing by the client, they were protecting their bottom line because their bonus was paid on it. So you had these silo agencies. So that's 40, 50 years old. And now you've got a new generation who go, oh, we've got new technology. So therefore, anything before that technology is old fashioned and old fashioned is evil and wrong and bad and doesn't work, which is kind of, kind of crap. You know, I've owned a supermarket right? and here's what customers used to do. They'd hand us a list of their weekly shopping order and it was the same order each week unless they changed it. Then we would pick and pack the goods and we'd put them in a car and we'd deliver it to their home. And usually we'd unpack it over a cup of coffee while they put it in the pantry. Then along came a new order form called the internet. 
now people order online instead of handwriting. Someone picks and packs, and someone they don't know delivers it to their front door and leaves it there. The customer experience, that little piece of buzzword that they think is new, has actually gone backwards thanks to the internet, right? It used to be a much better customer experience in the grocery industry. <laughs> it was personal. Right? It, was, it was an employee from the actual brand that you're purchasing yeah. off instead of like a third-party fulfillment sort of company that's... Me. <laughs> Coles had to, I think it was Coles had to make a change. They call it the last 10 yards, right? So you've done everything right. The customer's ordered. You've got the delivery. And then along comes some BO-smelling, blue singlet, 50 nose piercings and a cigarette. Here's your groceries, love. Delivering it. And they had to change completely. And what they've done is the delivery for these retailers now, they've actually given territories and they're making the drivers wear uniforms because that's where it dies is in that last 10 yards. They can do all the work up front, but the delivery was where the problem was. So they've had to change the way they go about delivering. Yeah, Curtis Stone ads will only get you so far, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, if the person delivering is not very pleasant or scares your children. <laughs> okay, so then let's get to another barrier. So there's this kind of dichotomy in the industry between, you know, this camp and that camp, brand versus direct response, digital versus non-traditional. But what about just the capability or exposure problem? So if I've never done a direct mail campaign before, mm. I wouldn't know how to go about it. I mean, do you go to an agency? Do you need a list beforehand? Like there's a lot of logistics yeah. involved. Okay, good question. There is a whole generation who, just uh, indulge me for a second, even the Direct Marketing Association went, oh, we think it's old-fashioned. We'll change our name to the Data-Driven and Advertising Association. I mean, all marketing's been data-driven. All we've got now is lots more data, most of it useless. So you've got a whole generation who don't know how to do it. And as if marketing was never data-driven. You ask any retailer how they use data up there to service a customer. So they need to read direct marketing books because there's only, I've relaunched my, I've had it for a long time now, but I've just relaunched my agency, Malcolm Walt Direct. I will be the only agency in the country with a direct in its name because everyone followed fashion. And that's what's happened is you've got this fashion industry in marketing. We follow, FOMO, oh, we've got to run down here and we need to do our TikTok or we need to be on, we need to be doing, you know, on Google Glass or something like that. You had this generation that followed fashion and didn't study history. So now if you're going to start, you're going to struggle. If you don't, you don't, Most people don't even know. I was talking to someone who has an online education business. They've had over 100,000 customers. They don't have their mailing address. So they can't even go back and mail anything to them because they've never bothered to, to find that out. Uh, they also didn't know that there was a list industry. You know what's worse than that? Uh, I mean, I know about these list industries. We'll get to that in a sec. But there's DDC commerce yeah. companies that have the address data but have never used it. Used it, that's right. And here's the interesting thing is that there is a whole list industry where you can go out and rent lists of prospects and they don't even know that. They think, oh, no, well, let's do a lookalike list on Facebook. That's where we need to be, you know. Or They don't know that in B2B you can rent a list of the IT managers in this country and just mail straight to them, right, and get to them directly. You either need to read a couple of decent direct marketing books, but also you've got to find a mailhouse who can put it all together and a printer. Because here's, we have lost a lot of print skills in agencies, right? Because they've, and that's a skill. It's a real skill to set a piece of type and a piece of print something and mail it. And, you know, what you don't want is them saying, right, oh, let's design this and find it doesn't fit in an envelope, which I've seen happen. They get to the mailhouse and the piece of paper that they printed doesn't actually fit inside the envelope. And they've got to go and buy larger envelopes or something like that. So it's a long-winded answer to say it's a little tough uh, you know i can plug my own service but i will be one of the only direct response agencies in the country the only other place you will find them is if you go to a specialist fundraising agency because they are big users of direct mail so they will at least know the process don't go to a digital marketing don't go to a digital marketing agency that's the big warning okay good to know i uh, look i come from a pre-press background as well back in the day I was yeah. doing some some pre-press work, so I, I sort of know what CMYK is and you know bleed lines and things like that. But most people are just designing this stuff on Canva. You might and- need to explain pre-press to your audience. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> but, you know, I just know how technical it is to do things like color matching, mm. to get that printer lined up. Like, there's a lot to yeah. it. And if you have no exposure to that, you're just going to send this digital fuzzy file to somebody sure. in the print industry and they'll be like, what the hell is that? I can't do anything with that. And, you know, it's going to look terrible. We had to do that recently. Someone sent us a Canva file. Yeah, we need, well, the three things key in any marketing, right, is where you spend your money is your media. The list. So get your media. You can have the best ad, the best offer in the world, but if it goes to the wrong people, you're dead in the water. So your money goes into getting your target right first, the list or the media channel that you're going to use. Then it's the offer. 
why should they do what you want them to do when you want them to do it? This is why direct marketing is hard. It's the hardest thing to do in marketing. That is, you're trying to get people who probably don't know you, may or may not, aren't interested in what you, what you want to talk about, and you're trying to get them to stop what they are doing and do what you want them to do when you want them to do it. And that's hard shit, right? Because you're saying, click on this, open this, do this now. Well, it requires sales. Yeah, and that, but that's a skill set to get people to do that, you see. And the problem you've got is people think because they can type, they can write. So you've got all this appalling copy online trying to sell stuff which is why so much of it fails, because they don't know how to write persuasively. Yeah, look, I just interviewed um, John Dwyer. Do you know the Greater Building Society ads that had Jerry Seinfeld on mm-hmm. that were... Um, yeah, I remember that. That he ran? So I just had him on the show two episodes ago. And he's like, look, 90% of marketers don't and companies don't use this, the general, hey, here's a problem, aggravate the problem, offer a solution, you know, contextualize it, have a really strong CTA or call to action. You know, that's this basic sort of process that marketers don't go through. They just talk about their product or go, hey, the five tips to, you know, whatever fluffy content and i'm like no i mean selling is an art and i just had this conversation the other day with another client we're creating a landing page i'm like landing page is a, a, a direct response sort of copywriting it's like you need to do the same things it's a sales process really punchy headline that's like an assertion that they that just pierces through and they kind of can't they can't get around they go oh that is so true and then you know you, you follow up with like contextualizing understanding the problem maybe they don't know they have a problem and you're you're contextualizing hey have you ever considered you know felt like this and then offer you know well we've solved this with xyz and then have a really good strong call to action so getting to that where does direct response fail the most in that writing style piece do you think is it the call to action uh okay failure points that's it's a good question firstly you've got to work with writers who know how to write and the big mistake is that people who think they can type are copywriters they're not type they're right not copywriters they're typists and that's why you're seeing so much passive language not active language not well written direct response but the key to anything, and, and the reason to your answer is, is why greater, you, you got that answer from greater, is people don't want to think that you go through steps. They want to think it's this amazo inspiration or it's a piece of creative or it's something sexy rather than let me dis- be disciplined about what I do in my identifying the problem, working out how we're going to solve the solution, deliver the solution, as you were saying. So the first thing you've got to do, like anything, is the old AIDA formula attend get their attention so the headline just as a headline in an ad uh you know just as the first thing said on a video um just as an outdoor poster it's the headline and then the visual that gets the attention so if you're talking mail it's the headline on the envelope to get people to open it people you know they know it's coming from a marketer what you've got to do is give them a reason why and one of the giveaways of those who don't know how to write is they write a question with a yes no answer and you never do that because you lose half the audience who say no and then they don't read. What you've got to do is a rhetorical or a curiosity statement that gets people to open it up. So you need people who understand how to write persuasively, who understand how to construct. So technique is more important than talent. Right? So you've got to write a persuasive argument. You know, The purpose of a sentence is to get the next sentence read. And you've got to step them through and give them all the reasons to buy. Because here's the thing. You don't know when people are going to buy. No form of marketing automation can help you whatsoever. In fact, every business could run without marketing automation and get 90% of the sales they're getting now. Marketing automation plays in the 7 to 10% where you might not have quite got them across the line, yet we're rushing to let computers do the work for us. Right? So if you just use the RFM, recency frequency monetary formula on your current customers, you do not need marketing automation. And that's how businesses survive for centuries without, more centuries, decades without marketing automation. If you know the recency they purchase, the frequency they purchase, and the value of the purchase, you've got a reasonable chance of predicting when they may or may not purchase. But, you know, the per- you can't, it's the same with this term customer journey. Goodness me, have you ever packed a, a backpack with crampons and your hiking boots and a map and a water bottle to go on a customer journey? I mean, it's an absolute crock of crap. There, here's the customer journey. Oh, we're out of toilet paper. Put it on the shopping list, will you? Right, that's a customer journey, right? There is no such thing as a customer journey. It's because we can track data points. We go, oh, there's a journey. There isn't a journey. I've seen. You know, there's a contact strategy for prospects, and there's a contact strategy for for customers. I've seen uh, entire departments spend days with sticky notes on the wall, mapping out their whole customer journey and mapping it into a digital mirror board and then re-engineering that into the market automation system. Like you lose so much yield on that it's first just, interaction. Uh, Concentrate on that. It's like absolutely. cascading 
you know, yeah. yield. So like, okay, maybe the first, second, third interaction, concentrate 90% oh. of your time there. And then all this convoluted journeys, like you're just, you're, you're yeah. optimizing for like 0.05% yield increase. So like, what are you doing? Like get the, get the basics exactly. right. You're right. You're absolutely right. Get the basics right. Basically in summary of what you just said, hire a bloody copywriter who knows how to write copy number one, right? And and yeah. then have a think about the format in terms of like, then what's that first interaction, whether it's a piece of chunky mail and, you know, you've got some bright color or something to encourage opening or, or it's a, a email headline, like work on the headline 90% of the time because that's going to get them to open the email to then get Subject the first line. seven seconds. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I think a lot of people do it in reverse. They spend the least time on the on that first hook to get you in and that's where you should spend most of your time instead so okay and and then where let's just say we've got their attention now i think okay then you've got to sort of propose your offer and i think a lot of people maybe get wrapped up in talking too technical about their product feature 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 instead of how this may benefit somebody and why it's relevant in the context and then i see them fail personally on the call to action it's always like buy now or something like that it's very standard and soppy um in those next two phases, yeah. what are your recommendations there? <laughs> okay. It's firstly, you've got to try and guide them through. And, and people have always scanned, by the way. That's not new. Scanning, we've scanned paper, newspapers, we scan magazines, uh, and we scan mail catalogs, and we scan online. That's why subheadings are important. Um, you know, on a page, the most read part of any page, if you look at it, and this is even on a, when you're on a landing page, the most read part is the headline. Right? So your headline has to be strong. And in less politically correct days, one of the world's most famous copywriters, Bill Jamie, now deceased, Bill refused to meet clients. They had to fax their briefs to him and his partner, Heike Radalati, who lived in LA. And their specialty was um, subscriptions for magazines. But, you know, as he said at a numerous seminars, the envelope is like the hot pants on the hooker. It's got to entice you to want to know what's inside and secure what's there, what it's carrying. And, you know, you have to get people interested and you've got to continue to do that. So that's why subheadings are key because people will jump in at different different points and those subheadings really should be benefit-related. So it's features, advantages, benefits. If you want the, the, fab, the fab formula is features, advantages, benefits. So what's the feature? What's the advantage of the feature? What's the benefit? And so you deliver as many reasons why. Reason why copy, if you talk to any journalist, that, you know, why, 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 why? What are the reasons why this is going to solve your problem and you should buy now? And your call to action should be not just once, but multiple times. The beauty of online and particularly email is you can put the call to action in different places and see which one they're clicking on, whether it's a button, whether it's a link, you know, whether it's a big box that says, you know, reply here. So you've, you've got to give them as many reasons to buy as possible and don't stop asking for the order. Uh, and that's, that's a skill. And as you said, don't do a glib soft handshake at the end, you know, Ask, ask for it. I, one of the techniques we use is why don't you make it the next thing you do? It will only take you 30 seconds and then you, then you will have blah, 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 whatever the benefit is. So nudge, yeah. just say the same as what you would say. All that, It's just salesmanship in print. That's all it is or in pixels. So it's what a salesperson would do face to face. Yeah, I was having this discussion just the other day. I'm like, the test of a good marketer? Well, a test of a good marketer for me is someone who's sold before, personally. Like, I know I've been in the shopping center, one of my earliest jobs, selling a telco sort of deal to cold people walking by who, like, are trying to avoid you. And it's the most uncomfortable thing you'll ever do. And, geez, I got good at sales. I got very good at that getting attention stuff. I mean, and then I was cold calling people for Colmore Brunton Research Firm who were already opted in to be called to come in for focus groups. I had to go through a list and call them and these people would swear at me and I'm like, you've already opted in for this list and they're like, don't call me and fuck it. And then they'd slam down the phone and I had to do that over and over and over to get focus group of 12 or 15. And I think if you've never done sales, all you do is brand and fluff around with design and stuff like that. And you sort of lose that core persuasive salesmanship. I think that's sometimes lacking. I agree with you. And I'll just say what David Ogilvy said, before you move into advertising, you should do your apprenticeship in direct response because you understand what works and what the triggers are. And I've always thought that. And I've worked in sales, I've been a business to business salesperson, I've worked in retail. I've even dressed up as the panda bear for WWF and scared children at the Easter show trying to get donations. Um, but uh, like you, uh, you know, in the shopping center. 
But you're quite right. If you've got a sales, if you've understood sales, you understand human nature and understand how to overcome objections because that's what you're doing. When you're, yeah. you're pitching, you've got to overcome objections and that's what the reason why copy is. It helps you overcome. And, you know, when you're buying signal, have you got it in green? Would you like it in green? No, we don't. But if you wait two weeks, you get it in green or whatever it is. So you give them the reasons, the range or the options or whatever they might be. And so understanding how to write persuasively and that's what you'll see is missing. You'll also see lots of passive language, which is just hideous. And it puts you to sleep. It's like academic language. Uh, yeah, passive voice active versus active voice. People. Yeah, active voice. Exactly. There is so much passive voice out there, which is because people, and it's in the way we're taught to write, right? We're told to write 2,000 word essay. And so we pack, we pack the essay with, with adjectives and verbs to fill up the word count. I know I teach at uni. I see it all the time <laughs> um, rather than write actively. And university and academics aren't allowed to write actively because they're not allowed to have an opinion. They've just got to present the facts. So they write dryly in passive voice. So, you know, you can tell if someone's not writing in active voice, you know they're not trained in writing. Yeah, look, I had to, um, coming back to, you've seen Star Wars, um, where Yoda goes, you must unlearn what you have learned to Luke Skywalker in uh, Dagobah. And I think it's very true. When I yeah. learned copywriting, I had to unlearn what had been reinforced for like five, 10 years in, you know, writing theses, you know, academic things. And, you know, the best way that I, I learned how to do copywriting was actually what we're doing now, which is conversational talk on a podcast. And I do this after this, by the way, I put this through a transcription program and automatically transcribes it pretty accurately. And then you read that prose and it is completely different to how I would ever write anything. And now when I'm writing speeches or like a structure of my thoughts for a speech or or a persuasive video or whatever you have to write in a different way for that script if you're making an ad or whatever it's a very different writing style it's light and day isn't it when you see someone who hasn't has used passive voice versus active voice yeah and the best way to test that copy is to read it aloud you read it aloud and that's all the clangers will come out that's one way to check your copy after you've written it because you think gee no it's wrong i've got to shorten and long sentences is the other the other issue you know Short sentences, yeah. short words, short phrases. Repetition. It's all the things you were taught not to do in English. Like start the sentence with and, use buts all yeah. the time, mm -hmm. all these weird and. things. Yeah. It's, can I just say the other giveaway is this statement of nobody reads anymore. Just ask J.K. Rowling. She made a fortune by people reading lots. People love to read when it's well written. They don't prefer long copy over short copy. The, the Daily Reckoning is the most popular online newsletter in the world that goes out every day on financial advice. It averages two and a half thousand words every day, right? Now, it's written well because people are interested in their investments. If you're interested in your investment, you will read every word, right? So it, this whole thing about people don't read anymore is rubbish. Yes, we are more visual. Absolutely agree with that. And since the end of last century, the average word count in direct mail packs has declined slightly. Uh, not by a lot, but it has. So if you can combine your words and your visuals, I'm, I'm yet to see direct mail using emoji, lots of emojis. But this whole thing that we don't read is a complete and utter farce. And if anyone, if you're in a meeting and people say that, you just need to ask them to get themselves educated or leave the industry because they're not helping. Okay, so it sounds like you're a bit of digital futurist, NFT, Web 3.0 kind of digital native, right? <laughs> I'm just joking. So when it comes to what tools you would use to execute these direct mail campaigns, as to say, we're trying to do it ourselves or do a DIY. You mentioned buying lists through a broker or leasing a list. Is there any sort of tools like mail merge sort of things or is there a, a software okay. that we yeah. can do to execute these campaigns? Yeah, uh, good question. There's no, real, there's no real tools per se. However, the most profitable list is your house list. That is your current customers. They're the people who, once they're a customer, they're the easiest to sell to. Then what you do is you look for lists of people who might be similar to your customers. Now, privacy has changed the list broking industry. So you used to be able to be much more specific on the sort of person you can get, but you can't but you can still rent lists like that. Uh, for years for American Express, the most profitable list that we rented to get new American Express cardholders was the list of people who bought adult sex toys. And the reason of that, and you sit there and go, oh my goodness, you know, but the reason was very simple. All their purchases were on credit card and the average value of the purchase was north of $100. So those were big credit card users. So you've got to look at why they're on the list. They love to use a credit card. So you mail to them an offer for American Express, converted its head off, right? So you've got to look at why people might be on a list if you're going to rent the list. Start with your house list, then try and find people who look like them.
uh, and there's another fallacy that people don't like filling in forms, their names and their address. Yes, they do. If the if the value is there, they will. And if they're not interested, then maybe they're not the right. They're a tie kicker and not the right prospect. From a tools point of view, though, there aren't really any because this is ba- this is fundamental manufacturing, right? You're manufacturing words and images onto paper, and onto a matching landing page. So yes, there's landing page tools. Uh, you know, you know, you've got the various landing page software companies that provide those, or you can build your own. You've got to have a good relationship with a printer and under, be up to date with what's going on with formats because technology formats are changing all the time in terms of the inks they use, the environmental inks. If, if your sustainability is an issue, what sort of paper and environmental inks are you using? But there's you know foils and embossment and die cuts and um, scratch and sniff and scratch and win. And there's a whole bunch of different tools you can do in the print. So talking to printers and understanding what they're up to will help you at least do something that's a little bit different. But there isn't, it's not like the digital world where you've got platforms and you can drag, you've got Canva and you pull this over here and it's and, and, and you've got all these templates that do it yourself. You've actually got to create from scratch, but you do need to fit into production sizes because you've got to minimise your wastage. If you're buying a sheet of paper, you want to make sure you maximise that sheet of paper if you're buying 10,000 sheets, you know, so that you're not wasting bits by the way you die cut the paper or something. But generally there aren't any tools. The only one I would do is the... Um, the flesh reading e-scale. So Rudolf Flesh was a Viennese professor. There's also the Hemingway uh, scale. It's built into Microsoft Word. So when you write your copy, and it's you need a few hundred words, it's not just for a paragraph, you go to the proofing tools in Microsoft Word and you can it will immediately tell you where you've got incorrect language within your message. Now, you may choose to keep it because you're writing colloquially or it may be a brand or a product name, so it might have highlighted that there was something wrong. But use the Rudolph Flesh Reading E-Scale and the Flesh Kincaid Readability Statistics. Murdoch, for example, doesn't publish unless the readability is at uh, seven, which is seven years of education. Understand that the OECD Adult Literacy study, the most recent, revealed that 82% of people in our country struggle with basic reading and comprehension. So you need to really write as simply as possible. And that's why long sentences, you can put in a long sentence in occasionally, but short words, short sentences, simple communication is what will get understood. The more you try to be business-like or professional-like or sophisticated, the more you'll lose your audience because the audience isn't that smart. And the smart audience, you know, at the top will pick it up for what it is. Yeah, your readability um, is, is coded into some of these SEO or um, website optimization programs like like Yoast. Um, yeah, it could be in Yoast. I'm not sure. But if you're writing copy, write it in Word and then use the readability statistics to see how good your copy is. So the flesh reading ease should be at north of 50%. And your Flesh Kincaid grade level should be at around seven to nine. Okay, this is good. Now, most people don't even know that that exists or even know that these tools are there because, as I've said before, they're typists, they're not writers. I mean, I've literally spent the last five years repairing websites. <laughs> That's all I've been doing is rewriting websites. I think those what's lost sometimes is that detail of appreciation of like what's good quality copy and what's bad quality. So it's, yeah, like you said, sometimes it's it's kind of intuitive, like the dumbest most understood copy uh, is the most effective. How do you know what a good piece of direct mail is? Like if we had to look at some of the metrics that we're measuring, if a campaign has gone well or not, is an open rate of 1% good, a sales redemption rate of X percent good? I mean, where are the sort of barometers here if we had to get into metrics a tiny bit? Not avoiding the question, it comes back to your objective, but historically when mail was in its premium in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s, if you were doing consumer acquisition to a list of people who didn't know you, then one to two to three percent was a good into response rates. It's it comes back to what you're finding now. Lists are a lot better quality. Those who are doing it, they also can't access other lists. So, if you're going to a house list of current customers and you're selling them something that they bought before, then you know you, twenty to thirty percent could be the response rate. Uh, in business to business, you know, as I said, I've had response rates 80 percent if it's targeted properly and it's a small list. The way to identify if you're an observer is if it's like direct response television. If you see the same ad, which might be a bit painful in those, some of those real infomercials are, but if it keeps running, there's a reason. They don't run it if it doesn't pay for itself. So if you see a piece of mail turning up in your letterbox regularly, whether it's unaddressed mail, just a retail catalogue, a leaflet, 
or a piece of direct mail from a from a wine company or something, and it keeps coming, it's there because it's working. They don't roll out stuff regularly if it's not working. So if you're seeing stuff that's being repeated, generally means it's working because if they're a good direct response advertiser, they they only roll out what works. I've, I've noticed the same thing, um, especially TV ads. Those most annoying ads with the jingle and the stupid actors, like step one, the underwear sort of ads, apparently being incredibly effective because yeah. like normal <laughs> yeah. people that they can relate to, very conversational, yeah. elementary language. Works its head off. Simple uh, works. And, and I think a lot of marketers kind of forget that hey, they're, the large portion of the market are pretty ordinary people. They're not hyper-intellectual people caught up in the ad land bubble. That's not who you're selling to. It's a classic problem-solution. Yeah, so so I want to like hit some of these myths on their head around direct mail or direct marketing. We sort of touch on a couple, but is there anything we sort of haven't, people who are not familiar or haven't done it as much as you would, would think is the case, but it's actually not? Well, the first myth is that it doesn't work. It does. It always has. It'll continue to work. What's the fastest growing area, by the way, and this to the point of a of um, shorter attention span slightly, is it's the media that's always had a 100% open rate, which is postcards, right? You, your postcard comes in an open format. You have to look at it and make a decision about it. So postcards with QR codes linked to landing pages is now the fastest growing media behind TikTok in the US, all right? And there are whole companies that do nothing, and I interviewed a few of them in my book. You know, one of them had, that I interviewed has over 300 employees. They do over a quarter of a billion postcards a year, but it's also linked to social media. So what happens is the postcard is the driver. They see the reminders in social or an email, and they might click on the email and it becomes the order form. Or in America, what you can do, unlike here, if you can link an IP address from a website visit to a home address and you can geofence all the devices in that home and post the ads on there. So if I go and visit a website within 24 hours, I can have a postcard mailed to me based on my website visit, just like remarketing online. You can now remarket with postcards and they're having huge success. So the first myth doesn't work. Yes, it works. Most people say it doesn't work, have never used it or they've used it poorly because they didn't know what they were doing. And if you want to test, a very cheap way to test is a postcard with a QR code. That's that's one myth. The, the other thing is it's tactile, which is it gets involvement. And even if the involvement is to look at it and throw it away, well, at least they've looked at it. It's certainly more than those not 70% or 80% who've just deleted the email without opening it, for example. Um, and I'm not saying one's better than the other. You'll get the best results when you integrate. So if you've got the same message appearing in social feeds, in email and in the print, you're going to get an uplift across both. It's not one or t'other. It's working. Integration has been around a long time. You know, we used to integrate with television, you know, yeah. uh, and or with with events. Now you can integrate in real time with social feeds and um, remarketing, and with email. So I would say don't use one or other. I would combine the two, and just make sure you've got your tracking right. But the other thing is the attribution. This attribution to digital is just hilarious. I mean, people have no idea what the, what the customer saw offline before they actually went online. To try and attribute something to digital only is just, it's, it's insanity. Uh, and so don't worry so much about that. Just worry about, where, okay, try and work out where they came from, but try and understand that if that combination's working, then maintain it and try and reduce the cost to get the same result. So you either improve the result or you get the same result for a lower cost. And that's what you often do in mail. You'll do a test and then you bring back the cost and go back. And people make this mistake in email, by the way, they send one email out and, oh yeah, we got a 20% open rate and a half a percent click through and sales of blah, blah. Well, the fact is an email comes in the inbox and then life gets in the way, you know, look, there's a dog, you know, like the phone's ringing. So send the same damn email out to the same list and you'll you'll probably get 50% response of what you got the first time. In mail, if you get a good result, if you hit the target that you're aiming for, mail the same pack straight away to the same group and you'll get 50% results rate again, right? So do it you know, do it in a series. Um, so don't see it as a one-off. Integrate the two together. Mail also is extremely expensive if you get it wrong. So test. You know, direct marketing is the art of losing money in very small amounts. So you can make it in large amounts, right? It's test and learn, test... 
AB split run testing was not invented online. It's been used for decades in the mail order industry. I remember Ogilvy writing in his book, Confessions of an Advertising Man, he did that. He would do it in newspaper ads and he'd then measure the response yes. rate. And that was the yes. original split exactly. test. Yeah, that's okay. only about 80 years ago, 60 years ago. <laughs> catalogs do the same they would do different inserts i think that's the myth nothing is new so so would you call yourself a data-driven marketer look i don't label myself i have always used data but the the myth is that things are new things are not new nothing has changed except technology humans have not changed let's look at what happened we've spent billions trying to get people to buy online billions and what was the reason people went online to shop a pandemic the fact that the stores were closed and we had no choice. Now, that peaked at almost 20% of total resale sales, almost 20%. Now, already we're seeing a decline in online shopping in terms of versus last year, right, in terms of percentage. So we've peaked thanks to not being able to go to physical stores at less than 20%. Now, in the States, if you take Walmart and Amazon out of that, it's less than 10%. So the market has matured in the digital space at less than 20%. So it's the kiddie pool of marketing, right? It's not where the big players are and it's not where the volume is. And the night that we came out of lockdown, hundreds and hundreds were queuing at midnight outside Kmart to go shopping, right? Now I buy online and I buy face-to-face. It's not one or other. We, it's digital as part of our life, but it's not this amazing, oh, everything's different, humans have changed. No, we buy emotionally and we justify rationally, regardless of the media. So the myth is that there are new things. No, there's no new things, just new technology. And, the, and most consumers don't give a shit about it. <laughs> they care about themselves, right? Mate, um, the one thing that people care about is themselves. <laughs> I think I think marketers forget, oh, yeah, our product is awesome, our brand is awesome. Like, they don't care. They care about what it can do for them. So, like, take their ego away, strip their away. They don't give a shit. Yeah. Start yeah. from there. And I think it was Bob Hoffman up. said, Bob Hoffman said really interestingly, a pizza crust on the sidewalk is rubbish, but a photo of a pizza crust on Facebook now that's content. <laughs> you know, customers don't care. Uh, speaking about this, is there any books around this topic that you'd definitely recommend people read because it's really changed your way of yeah. thinking for the better? Just let me, uh, there was something I meant to say earlier. I was talking with someone today. They spend $2 million a year on television in brand advertising and they're a direct response advertiser online, right? They're trying to get subscriptions to a certain service. He said they thought they'd cut back on their brand advertising to save money. And the moment they stopped brand advertising, all their online sales dropped. Because you want social proof, right? People want social proof that they're buying something that other people agree with. What you don't want is micro-targeting, this rubbish about micro-targeting online. We've been micro-targeting with mail and phone for decades. But if you micro-target some cool new craft beer and, and you turn up to the party with the craft beer that no one's ever heard of in a six-pack, no one wants to drink it and they're looking at you weird. But if you have been targeted with the, the new beer that everyone wants to drink and you turn up, we probably won't, you'll only get one of them because the five will go, right? So you've got to provide social proof, which is the value of branding. And when it comes back to books, obviously I've got a self-interest, but Drayton Bird's book on common sense, direct and digital marketing, is it's in, I think, 17 languages. It's been a bestseller now for almost 40 years. It's regarded as one of the Bibles. If you just read that book, you would have succeeded with online marketing without doing anything else because all the techniques of how to persuade people to buy remotely are in there. If you read Lester Wonderman's is a little harder on direct marketing, but if you read any of the classic direct marketing textbooks, they will show you all the techniques. The only difference is the order form, which happens to be online or where the ad is placed. It happens to be digital. The techniques are the same. Yeah, the mechanism maybe and the mediums have changed but yeah the, the the core sort of principles haven't changed oh there we go oh okay and this is yours oh great so it's uh, i've just written one on direct mail uh because if you just go quickly through it amazon google paypal U uber uber eats hello fresh dinnerly doordash sonos all use mail and unaddressed mail to acquire and keep customers and in fact before covid hello fresh was knocking on doors doing the old door knocks like avon calling they were knocking on doors they want to turn up to my house to sell me hello fresh it was just as i was writing a blog on hello fresh they had people in the malls you know in the shopping centers to sell old fashioned like you were selling your, your telco that's how they are trying to sell their business because selling it online is costing them too much to acquire a customer just on its own so they're looking at different channels and inserts in fulfillment boxes there's now two companies their whole job is selling the ad space in fulfillment boxes well people have been selling inserts in fulfillment boxes for as long as i've been alive 
It's just that there's more fulfillment boxes now, so there's more opportunity. And there's a great way, if you're selling wine, do an insert, and you see that with Naked Wines or Lathwaite's, insert in HelloFresh. HelloFresh now, Hello Perks. It's an envelope that goes in the HelloFresh box, and they sell the space in the envelope to non-competitors to help offset the cost of delivery. Oh, no, no, no. There's a new name for that. There's a new buzzword called retail media. That's That's got a name oh, for that now. Didn't oh, you know? a, this, okay, here's the other thing that's, 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 that's the myth, that everything needs a new name. The names exist, kids, you know, like get over yourselves. It, it's already there. And just because someone a little older than you has already given it a name doesn't mean you need to change it. Um, well, apparently it's a new and, and growing sector that's that's just booming right now, Malcolm. So no, it's, an, it's not a new sector. It's an old sector that has been growing for a long time and it's growing rapidly now because there's more fulfillment boxes. Goodness me. <laughs> Either way, it's been rebranded and renamed. Oh, um, okay, so getting to the next thing, what about a favorite website resource that you really recommend okay, other people yeah. read? Uh, that's kind if, of look, if you want to learn about mail, there's a resource in America called whosmailingwhat.com and they collect through various ways, almost every piece of advertising mail in America, and they analyze it. You can pay a subscription. So you can, now, okay, it is American, it's not Australian, but if you're working in automotive, in financial services, in home improvements, in, in food delivery, they have, you can actually look at all the various products uh, and mailings that are done for those categories. So it it used to be a, um, it's a it's a it's a good resource. We don't have it in Australia, unfortunately. The library, the Direct Marketing Association, which, by the way, I was involved with for almost three decades on the board there, and as chairman of judges and things, they used to have a library of award-winning material. And in fact, every year I would go to New York and go to the American Direct Marketing Association and spend a day because the the Echo Awards were the international awards for direct marketing across all channels, and you could sit in their library and look at every entry from around the world. So I would just go there and. As David Ogilvy said, search the world's still the best. Just look at ideas for different categories for my clients, like automotive, financial services and that. But because they were happened to be, a lot of them were in mail, they threw them all out because they said, oh, well, no one's going to be using mail anymore. So these thousands of years of intellectual property got wasted. So who's mailing what's probably the best? The Australian Direct Marketing, or whatever they're called now, offer almost no, no support. Aussie Post used to have 50-odd staff who used to go around, they were paid for mail marketing to educate small businesses in how to do it, and big businesses. And they, they actually printed, they bought my book and we put their logo on it and they used to hand it out. The best gig I ever got from them was teaching wine marketers how to run wine clubs because I had to fly around to all the wine regions and drink wine and educate wine marketers. That was a really rough gig um, because Aussie Post was setting up fulfillment centres for the wine clubs, you see. Um, so you won't get much support because they fired all their mail marketing people and their resources page on the website has resources. So use that. And in fact, that gives you good guides on what you need to be because Australia Post offers postal discounts. Now, you only get the discount if you're complying in terms of the way you've designed or you lodge your mail, which is why you need to use a mail house because they will lodge it in a certain way that gets you discounts on your postage. So there's, there's promotional mail discounts. So I would look to Australia Post website. I'd look to Who's Money What. I would subscribe to Drayton Bird. Um, you can subscribe to mine. I've just launched it again on my website. What about a piece of tech like hardware or, or software that helps you do your job better? Okay. Pen and paper. If you're doing your, if you're developing ideas and every creative will tell you this, you should always do it with paper and pen because you can do, you can draw all over the joint and draw linking lines and pull things together sitting on a computer and going scrolling down and then having to go back up from it's just a sheer perception point of view you can't absorb or the same so the stimulation is pen and paper because you can i don't mean write your letter on pen and paper but when you're doing the planning session and you're thinking about your structure do it on a pen and paper and you'll be amazed at what comes out uh, the other little technique is once you have done your writing sleep on it and then look at it first thing in the morning and read it aloud and you'll wonder what was I drinking last night when I wrote that? You know, so because you've Champagne. you're less stimulated, you, you you can look at it with a fresh mind. But there's, as I said, use the flesh reading ease, ease. There aren't any tools like the digital category uses in this space. There are some people trying to con you that computers can write better copy, but I know in nearly all the head-to-head -head tests, it hasn't it hasn't proved because they can't get the nuance. But certainly, you're going to see that happen. You're going to see a lot of people try to say machines can do all the thinking for you. 
Yeah, look, and uh, I talked to Vicky Ross about this yeah, in season writer. one about this, and she did this talk in Mumbai about the robots taking over the world. And we sort of discussed this, and there is some platforms that can do okay copy. I would call it like standard sort of bloggy automation content crap that you could scale a content digital agency on and they can actually be okay for some headline ideas but i think understanding and every time i contracted a copywriter you need to give them a really good brief with a lot of research or if you don't have it they'll insist on doing that research piece first uh, before they write the copy and i think that's the thing that's sometimes missing is the context or that research that feeds into the the formulation of that i don't think ai is really there right Uh, now and you just nailed the one thing i forgot to tell you the most important tool is a brief. Most creative work fails across any media channel because of the brief. If the brief is no good, nothing else matters. So getting a quality brief in writing. One of the exercises I do when I'm teaching briefing is I just get the room just to clear their head and then I just say one word. I'll say something like rabbit and then I'll go around the room and say, what can you, what are you look, what can you picture in your mind? White rabbit, fluffy rabbit, chocolate rabbit, Easter rabbit, rabbit in the, in the in the gun sight. Everyone's already got a different interpretation and that's why the brief is important so that you ensure they interpret what you mean. And if you've got to rely on tools to come up with headlines, you shouldn't be in the business. You might use some of these for, you know, there's, I know there's business name tools, I've used those and things just to maybe give you some stimulus. But if the brief's right and the research is right and you actually know your job, you'll come up with the creative stuff. Because if you're using the tools, you're using the same as everybody else who's weak like you. And that's why all this stuff looks the same online because it fits a template. This is the worst thing. It's like every social media ad's the same size with the same character count. So the brain goes, add, ignore. And if you look at your average ask time now, right, your average social screen time, it's less than one second on an image, right, as you're scrolling through. According to Digivisor in Sydney, we scroll 110 metres a day on our phone. Facebook call it the Eiffel Tower measurement. We scroll three Eiffel Towers a day, right? So you're giving less than a second to something and your brain's going, well, I know what that is because they've designed them all to be the same. Stock photo, same character count, all look the same, ignore. Yes, you can use the tools as a stimulus to maybe help you, but if you become reliant on them, I call it the Canva or the template paradox where everyone uses these sort of template formulaic programs mm-hmm. or whatever to, to create this at scale because it's efficient if you're an agency. But then in itself, it makes it inherently less effective. So more efficient uh, reduction in effectiveness. Absolutely. That's the problem with the template industry. What about a really good quote or meme account or something? Um, I'm a big fan of Tom Fishburne. Like think of something like that or some really good quotes that uh, you could talk or quote about this topic we're talking about right now that have always stuck with well, me. Well, the, the, the first one was the art of losing money in very small amounts. The other one which I live by is, and it's our agency philosophy, is one thing you know about your customer is worth more than anything you know about your product or service. Because if I understand something about you, I've got a reason to have a conversation. But if I know only stuff about my product or service, it's like the insurance guy walking into the bar and starting to try to sell you before they know your name. Get to understand your customer. Uh, An example was I was training small businesses in writing marketing plans. And I spent a day with them. They then spent two weeks researching their customers, then came back and presented their plan. And I was in mid-Queensland, mid-North Queensland. And this guy said, oh, our customers love our customer service. He provided industrial products to the mining industry. And I said, that's fantastic. He said, but we don't have a customer service department. And I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, we still get fax orders as well as email because of region. He said, and every time an order comes through, our receptionist just thinks it's polite to ring the people to say, thank you for your order, just so you know we got it. Because you didn't know it would go off into the ether and you wouldn't know whether they got the order or not. And they reckon that was the best customer service because no one ever confirmed their orders. So I said, well, here's what you do. You get her to ring them and thank them and then find out when they expect the order to be delivered, then nudge it out a little and then make sure you deliver a few days earlier. You'll always be able to charge a premium. They'll always pay you on time and never query the cost. Six months later, he rang me and said, that's exactly what's happening. <laughs> you know, Because they got to understand, oh, the customers like service. Funny that. <laughs> and they're willing to pay a premium for it. Oh, who would have known? Exactly. You've got a book, which is uh, I saw on LinkedIn the other day, and which is the whole reason behind me sort of going, hey, 24 hours ago, let's let's get on and talk about this. What do you want to promote now or, or give some, some air to? Look, I do have the new book out, which is Direct Mail, The Real Digital Disruptor. And that's the reason I published that was we've now got clients and agencies dem- who've asked me to do education to help them because clients are demanding direct mail, but no one knows how to do it. 
So I published the book and I ran an event and I'm looking at, I'm actually looking at bringing out Drayton Bird and Steve Harrison, two of the world's best marketers for an event later in the year, all about this subject to do it with me. But you can go to malcolmalldirect.com.au. If you want help, I've relaunched the agency as well. So we're helping clients now with direct marketing across all channels. Great. Okay. And what's the best way for people to contact you if they want to get in touch? They really resonate with what we're talking about. What, LinkedIn, email, website? Well, LinkedIn, you'll find me on LinkedIn. Connect to me there or inquiry, I-N-Q-U-I-R-Y at madmail, M-A-D-M-A-I-L.com.au. Mads for Malcolm All Direct, that's a short one. I'm actually, you, you asked earlier about the ages comment about NFT and Web 3.0. I'm thinking of doing some mail packs as NFT, see if I can make some money to, for retirement. <laughs> yeah, you've got a bit of work to do there, I think, Malcolm. <laughs> Who uh, attended my webinar the other week on this subject, said it was like a secret priesthood of knowledge that no one else knows, which I thought was the best testimonial I've ever had. She runs an online, pure play online business. She said, I keep getting told you've got to go to digital and it's not working. And why hasn't anyone told me about this? It's not going to solve all problems. All I'm saying is don't ignore it. It's another channel that's proven. So if it's proven, use it and integrate it with your digital. You'll get great Well, um, thanks for having a really good chat. I think that was great. I'm going to unpack all that myself. Really, really appreciate it. And let's talk again soon. Okay, mate. Great to talk to you. Look forward to seeing it. And I'll certainly promote it to my network. That was another one of our channel-specific episodes, in this case, direct marketing or direct mail. Hopefully that gives you a good grounding in the whole world of this very lost art. This complements really nicely the episode, season three, episode seven with John Dwyer, who we actually mentioned during this talk. Definitely listen to that episode as well because that's when he takes that direct response or direct marketing mentality and applies it in lots of different situations. As always, give us a review if you liked it. Tell other people about it. Share it on social media. If this rule really helps helps improve the general discourse and industry. What is old is new again. Some of these really important first principles are the things that a lot of newer people aren't aware of. And just like reading Marcus Aurelius's book, Meditations, there's a lot in history in the thousands of years that hasn't changed. And a lot of the things we mentioned in this episode haven't changed for decades or even hundreds of years. So again, there's lots of work to go. And thanks again for following. As always, if you have any feedback or comments, DM me on LinkedIn or tag me on Twitter at DoseJohn on Twitter or official John James is my LinkedIn. Otherwise, you can find me on Instagram under Champagne Society. Join the reverse newsletter if you haven't already done so, so you can get some of your own questions answered. Go to the Hybrancy YouTube channel page to watch all these highlights and short to more episodes. But that's all for now. And until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>